welcome to episode five from MOSIF's APIs over IPAs podcast network. I'm Derek Gilling, your host today and the CEO of MOSIF, the API observability platform. Joining me is Jessica Lamb, previously the chief architect and VP of engineering at LoungeBuddy. Uh, they got acquired by Amex who, and she designed many of the APIs there continuing to be used today. We'd love to hear a little bit more on like, how do you architect that and what were some of the design decisions that went into uh, that planning? Cool. Yeah, so the, the evolution of those APIs were sort of a, in my mind, like a natural progression of the of the company as well as the product. Um, initially, um, the product was uh, just a mobile app, um, and then it has you know the the app backing um, behind that, and there weren't any sort of API in addition to that. And after that, um, that mobile app took off. That was when I joined um, in in Precede. Um, and so as the first engineer high and also the, the chief architect, um, one of the first major project that we were thinking of is how do you enable purchasing for lounges? I um, mean, so some context on LoungeBuddy is that it's a lounge finder initially, and then later on it became sort of a lounge management platform. Um, and so between the evolution of that is um, at the point where we decided to add purchasing, um, there was sort of the idea is that, well, we, purchasing lounges shouldn't be, conceptually shouldn't be just restricted to the app. And so at that point, was, the insight was that this, this is sort of a concise unit of value that anyone can derive from. So in the future, if we're building a web app um, and then, or if we're building like a website or there are external partners, this concise, this concise unit of value can can be kind of reused. And so going back to you know, my calculator programming days and, and offsetting repetitive tasks and really think, thinking about what is the thing that is repeatedly used that other people can derive value from. Like, I think that's where the API ideas came from. It was like, well, let's not build it as part of the app backing. It would make sense that we start this API service. So thinking about what is the, the centralized way to manage all of those things. So the initial conception was that, so, so breaking it down, like what are the, essential steps for making a purchase. So first it's like availability, like check to see if there's inventory for a particular lounge. Um, and so just looking at that sentence, you realize that there are certain variables like which lounge. So, so that, you know, that would be like a parameter you pass in for the API. So kind of going through that is like availability. And then, so after you get availability, you, you take the thing that you're interested in and then you ask, you know, what is the pricing on it? Um, and then after that, um, and then figuring, and then making the purchase. Um, so initially thinking about conceptually, what are the, the essential steps? Um, and then just putting it out there and iterating on it. Um, and so one of my core engineering philosophy is that making, is, is actually easy, is actually better to try to make something easy to change than is, is to try to predict the future. Um, so then that way um, with our first, um, so after the purchasing um, API was constructed, we first start to test it uh, using our mobile app. Um, and so the mobile app start, you know, using the purchasing flow um, and then that help us work out um, the communication, like as in whether or not the API makes sense and whether or not they're concise enough um, or they're not, you know, overly complex. Um, after that has been worked out, then we started developing the web, um, the website to use the same API and then so on and so forth. Yeah. Really great to hear, especially thinking about concise units of value. You know, whenever you're looking at an API, understanding you know, how do you provide more value to your customers, whether it's something that can be repeatable or used. Um, how did you measure that though? Was, was there a way for you to understand, you know, each value that uh, each API is bringing to the business? 
Um, I think this is sort of, I, I would I would say that this is something that uh, was lacking um, on the platform. Um, and and I, I really wish that you guys were around when we um, started <laughs> this, you know, many, many years ago, um, is that we, we didn't really have a way of measuring that. Um, we were, you know, we were focused on um, air handling, making sure that it was robust and that people weren't experiencing errors. Um, and we have some preliminary like very surface level metrics around um, how often those APIs are called, but not necessarily um, anything more than that. Um, and in terms of, in terms of like, uh, and and you know, we obviously would know um, how many people make purchases through the APIs. Um, but apart from those um, surface metrics, we didn't really have anything else beyond that. I guess we should have started a few years earlier, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's always the case, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm speaking more towards your APIs, you know, it sounds like, you know, some of these were used by your mobile app, some were used by, you know, your, your website, you know, how did you actually organize like internal APIs versus external facing ones? Were they the same? Were they different? Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. Um, I, my, my opinion or my principle on that is that um, just because you're internal doesn't mean that you get special treatment. Um, I think one of the ways that was really helpful um, in using that principle for developing this API is that when when we do open it up to external partners, like it literally, it just works. Um, because the way that we were managing authentication that we were actually, um, it, or, or the way, so the way that we were developing um, the API was that we're assuming every internal application that uses that API is actually an quote unquote external partner. Um, and so we're not gonna like let um, the internal API have some special backend thing to like just optimize some small thing in order to do whatever they want. And, and that's, you know, always a case of negotiation between, um, you know, front end and, and app backing and app backing and API because it, for anyone that has worked with, you know, different developers, people would always say that, oh, if the API just return all of this, it would be so much easier for the front end or something like that. And so resisting the urge to have those sort of workaround have make the API pretty clean and also the separation of concerns and responsibility very clean across the system. Um, so I think my recommendation for, um, for developing API internally is to treat every client as if it was an external client. That's a really good point, especially when we go to larger companies where you know you do have so many different teams accessing that API. Each team is effectively a customer, right? And and trying to ensure that API is really your contract and a way for you to uh, iterate on something versus you know the shortcuts also helps for security, right? You know, in terms of uh, making sure the same security that you apply externally, you also apply to other teams, right? So you don't have, ever have a case where maybe a vulnerability in, in one area of your uh, network. I mean, you know, speaking on these, you know, APIs a little bit more, do you design the API up front or, or was it more you start with the service and then organize it more around the API? How do you think about API first? Yeah, so so that's a really good, um, that's a really good question. Um, so I've actually done it um, two different ways. Excuse me. So for the purchasing APIs, um, like it was, it was very obvious from the onset that it was something that's going to be reused across the platform. Um, across all of our different services and externally. Um, but there were other things that kind of sort of like sneaked up on us. Um, so for example, there was this one core utility on the application, which is looking up lounges based on access rules and access items. Um, so an example of an access item would be like your credit card. Um, and then an access rule would be something like, if you have this credit card and you're inbound to a particular airport, then you have access to this particular lounge. Otherwise, if you're outbound, then you, you don't have access. So, so that was initially all inside the iOS app. 
Um, and so what we realized later on when we did integration with American Express, for example, um, that there was, um, there was a need to be able to access that similar functionality. And so at that point, um, figuring out how to, how to effectively abstract that out um, is kind of an interesting process. So, you know, there are people who, who, who would say that, okay, let's just stop everything, completely refactor that application, take out all of that service, put it in a different service. Um, like in my mind, that that's actually a very high risk endeavor um, and it doesn't give you necessarily as much benefits that you think it would. And so one of the way that um, typically I do um, the sort of migration or, or changing a paradigm within the system is to have sort of a, like not really an API gateway, but we have the service call um, like traffic control. Um, and so essentially the expectation is that if you're accessing any APIs, uh, you would use um, uh, the traffic control service. And behind the traffic control service, sometimes um, the API is implemented in that service, but other times it's actually rerouting to a um, the back end of a, another service that might have um, what you're looking for. And so then that actually facilitates migration in the future. Like as in, if you want to move the code from you know an app backing into the actual service, you can optionally do that if there are benefits. But otherwise, you you are setting the expectation that if you're accessing API, use traffic control, and you don't care about how traffic control get that information as long as that contract is with you know traffic control. Um, and they, so I think that also is a really good way to preserve you know velocity because with startups, velocity is you know make or break. Um, and so I feel like that way of operating was really helpful. Um, you know, to not have to predict the future. Like as we didn't know that we're going to be using this externally but there's a way to do it in a very low risk way. Well, that's a really good point is the ability to iterate as quick as possible, especially for early stage startups. Um, but you also brought up an interesting point also around migration, right? How did you actually have a process in place to make sure you didn't break your integration with the Amex or, or other customers? Or, or was there a process in place? Uh, um, yeah, so so startup and process, that's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the so there was a couple point of integration that we did uh, with uh, with uh, American Express. Now one is that um, their app uses our um, purchase API, and so right now if you you know log into American Express app and then go into like lounges, um, you you can actually the the QR code that's generated at the end of that is is from the um, from the purchase flow, um, and then the other integration is actually. Um, when the iPad um, was introduced to the AMEC lounges, um, there was there was uh, the integration um, with behind the scene with the purchase flow, but also an integration with their external um, partner. Um, and so the way that it works is that um, when someone swipes a card, a card number is actually sent to their service. Um, so there wasn't risk, you know, in terms of us getting certification and like all of those security stuff in place. Um, and then after that, it, it would return um, a, an access item, and then we do something within our service to figure that out. Um, we had a lot of um, error handling in place, like as in the initial integration um, with with the third party actually had a lot of 500 errors. Um, and the interesting thing is that 
they didn't have air handling so they didn't actually know what errors were happening but because we had air handling we were like we're getting 500 actually from you um and here are the error messages uh, or lack of error messages that you know we're we're getting and so um for like an initial launch um not sure i'm supposed to be talking about this but it was sort of um, like so on the front end uh, on the app you know they would see the 500 error but but because you know their service didn't have um air handling like it was up to us like there was a lot of um back and forth from us and them it's just like okay when this happened we're getting an error from your service even though the user is seeing you know air on our you know our, our app um and so that's kind of the importance of you know air handling and, and very good air handling like, like anytime there is a potential for um you know um some sort of error make sure to log it definitely Definitely having that, you know, error handling and monitoring in place so you can ship with confidence, right? Without it, then you're almost flying blind. Uh, how did you um, actually set this up and, and what were some of the challenges that you ran into? Right. Um, so um, I wonder how much of that has changed, um, you know, since I left um, about maybe a year or two years ago. But the way that we had it um, at that time, um, making sure there were error and the way and we were using Heroku um, back end. Mm -hmm. Um, and they had some tooling just right off the bat. Like if you had a uh, over a certain percentage of air, um, then then like it it could you can set up an alert to to track that. Um, and so we have all of that in place. Um, in terms of having uh, what was the other thing? The thing that that calls you um, oh pager duty. Um, so we we had the alerting um, on that set up with pager duty so that. Um, over a certain percentage of error um, on different services, especially the poor external facing services, um, like someone would get a call. Um, and so the incentive on the team is that, you know, having all the error handling in place and then wanting to make sure you're not getting a call in 3 a.m. So. No, definitely. Uh, we see a lot of customers using PagerDuty and uh, so far the service is pretty good. Um, most of itself has an integration with PagerDuty too. Yeah, it, love it. We'll <laughs> love the relationship there. Oh, definitely. When it comes to uh, testing, did you have any best practices or process there? And, and what was that like and some of the challenges for, for testing your APIs? Yeah, so um, this, that's, a, that's a really great question. Um, so um, when it comes to startup and optimizing, um, like at, we, we try to go for the 80-20 rule. Um, like in terms, like there, you know, obviously theoretical best practices, like, oh, we want 100% code coverage or um, we want to make sure everything is tested. Um, I, I feel like I'm I'm a bit of a contrarian on that on that thought. Um, my I guess my principle was that test the most important things, um, and then if there's additional bugs that um, over time has surfaced, then you know you add tests that way. Um, and so doing the minimum essential thing, and then looking at you know what kind of error. Um, you have and then kind of build on top of that. Um, so sort of the anti-fragile approach to development. Um, so some of the thing that we did was um, obviously having really robust tests on the the actual um, specific API calls themselves, um, like you know, like the get and post um, and all of that that you are exposing externally. Um, and then um, you know, after those are are, are completed, then um, sometimes depending on how often a particular um, service is called, um, we also do um, auxiliary using auxiliary to to do um, like a load testing on uh, just before things get deployed, just to make sure like just like a sanity test to make sure that you know things aren't like airing out randomly because high load and things like that. Um, and so those tests are sort of phase in after initial launch. So you know. 
it sort of goes back to you know what I was talking about before, um, getting something out there first, and then seeing what kind of errors that you're getting back, and then um, making it more robust over time instead of trying to over engineer right right off the bat. And so when we started to see like load issues, then we started to do um, the load testing um, just to see it's like. Here's, um, here's like how many requests per second we're getting and things are airing out. Let's start doing load testing and for like 2x the amount just to make sure that, you know, we're, we have the padding there. No, definitely. And especially making sure you don't over-engineer is always uh, important for startups. So, so uh, engineering leadership, you know, a lot of times you're balancing customer needs versus engineering needs, right? And you have technical debt that gets built up. Um, what are some ways that you're able to iterate quickly and balance those customer needs without overburdening your, your engineering team? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question, and I um and just from all the different startup that um, that I advise or, or has worked on in the past, that's always a problem. Like Aston, um, things are never moving fast enough, and there's always technical debt. Um, so I think the way to kind of risk mitigate um, that sort of refactoring is to actually always leave the campsite cleaner than you found it. Um, like as in every new feature, instead. So for example, instead of taking you know a sprint or two out to refactor something because you know it's starting to have technical debt. Um, the ideal way to go about it is actually in the midst of fixing a bug or in the midst of creating a new feature, you're going to be test, you're going to be touching existing code. And so when you touch it, um, if something is inefficient, like have the have the will to think through it um, and, and realign the code base. Primary reason I think that um, technical data is accumulated is that when you're developing the system for the first time, there are certain business assumptions around the relationship to models. Um, and so over time, because of different features, and those relationships sort of changes. And so you notice that on a design level, you notice that on a feature level. And I think the, the, the missing part is that sometimes you don't do the work to change it on the code level to reflect that change. Um, and so this kind of go back to the thinking about the system in a holistic way. It's not that you know you have design and then you have front end and then you have back end and you have system. It's actually all the same thing. Like as in there should be a um, consistent conceptual thread that runs through all of it. And design is just a visual representation of that relationship. Um, and then so understanding that relationship deeply and making sure that that's reflected in code, um, it, in my opinion, is, is kind of the best way to mi minimize a code debt, or, I mean, a technical debt, and that's the way to make sure that you can move quickly. Because if those concepts is properly represented, to reuse them um, in the right way, it's super easy. And so there's this you know, idea that what, when you're not even designing for a particular method to to take on a particular you know, way of being used. It should just work. It's kind of like a framework. Um, and it, this is actually one of the reasons I really you know, love I, um, Apple framework is that things usually just work if you're using it the right way. Um, and whereas a lot of time I think developers don't really think about the intention of the, uh, the specific methods or APIs and just try to do it the way that they want to. Um, and so I think this also you know, really taking the time to understand um, and then refactor as you develop, as opposed to refactor, you know, in a vacuum. Yeah. Oh, really great insights, especially around technical debt and how to think about developing. Uh, really great to have you here, Jessica, on our podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll visit you in LA sometime soon. Yeah, definitely.